0: Okay, well, why we believe the Bible. Good morning to all of you. These, uh, these are exciting days around here as we think about our new building, and we're doing all the work and preparing for the final inspection uh, very soon. <clears throat> but what will the inspector be doing? What is the final inspection really all about? Basically, if you boil it down, he's going to come and see if our building meets the standard That's set by the county, by the state. That's his job. And I'm not worried at all because John's doing a fantastic job of making sure we meet that standard. So uh, it's going to be good. But today, I bring that up because today we're going to talk about books in the Bible that meet the standard. That meet the standard to actually be considered or uh, recognized as part of the Bible. And uh, so that's what we're going to talk about. Have you ever wondered let me shrink this down. Have you ever wondered why these particular 66 books? why these 66? Why are there 39 Old Testament books, and why are there 27 New Testament books? Why those ones in particular? How did they get chosen? <coughs> why not more? Why not less? And that's the question we're going to look at today. We're studying the canon of Scripture. It's called the canon of Scripture. And it doesn't mean we're going to blow anybody up, but it just means that uh, canon, the word, means ruler or standard. It's a measurement, uh, a form of measurement. It was basically, when it was in Greek written, it was, a, uh, it was a measuring rod. It was a measuring stick. But later, it really became to mean an item that has been measured in found to meet the standard. So it's the standard, the canon, and whatever meets the standard is okay. So here's the definition as we apply it to uh, to Scripture, to the Bible. Uh, the canon of Scripture is the books of the Bible that measure up to the standard of Holy Scripture and have been recognized as divinely inspired of God. So in our Bible, there are 66 books that have measured up to the standard of of Scripture that we recognize. But let me make something very, very, very clear. And I put this statement at the bottom of your, uh, your outlines there. This is from John MacArthur. I, I don't often quote living people. I usually try to quote dead people. But, uh, but, but John MacArthur had a good statement here about the canon of Scripture. So follow along if you would, please. It is not the church or the people of God that determines which books are inspired by God, and thereby Scripture. The writings themselves are vested with the authority of God on the basis of divine inspiration. And we've talked about inspiration. They are the Word of God because they are written under the Spirit's inspiration. The people of God, the church for the New Testament, Israel for the Old Testament, merely recognize... This is a very important phrase. They merely recognize the authority present within those writings. Canonicity is based on the fact of inspiration, not the process or agency that did the collecting. So here's, let me make this very simple. We're not saying that man determines which books are the can- in the canon of scripture. Man only recognizes which books belong in the canon of scripture. That's a very important distinction. God is the one who uh, made sure that these are the books that are very clearly, that very clearly should be in the Bible. And I think he made it very clear. As we look at the uh, criteria today, we'll see that there is no doubt that these books belong and others don't. And so, as John MacArthur says here, Pastor MacArthur, in the earliest years, of the Christian faith, the early church, the early believers, and then Jews before that for the Old Testament recognized that these certain books were inspired by God. These are God books. They're not man books. And so we're going to put them in the canon of Scripture. And we're going to look at how they did that. But first, before I go into that, I want to start with a story this morning because I think we need to see the importance of the canon of Scripture. This story is about a man famously called Marcion the heretic. I don't know why his mom named him the heretic, but that's it, no, not true. He, that's, that's a nickname he got later on. But Marcion was born, I'm going to kind of tell it to you here, so pay attention. Mar- Marcion was born in Sinope in AD 85. Uh, this is in, in the Roman world. It, uh, is, he was born in what is now Turkey on the coast of the Black Sea. Marcion was the son of a bishop. He was an intelligent, capable, hardworking, uh, unbending, but he was also a vain and rich, very wealthy, and ambitious person. He made his way to Rome sometime uh, about between 8, uh, 135 and 139, and he was accepted into the Christian church there. He gave a very large gift to the congregation, an amount worth more than 100 years' wages. Uh, his, his stint in the church of Rome, though, didn't last very long, He was formally excommunicated in 144, and his lavish gift was returned to him. Marcion became, though, one of the most successful heretics in the early church. Um, He was oppressed by everyone, uh, or excuse me, opposed. He was opposed by everyone that was anyone, all the church leaders. And I'm going to name some of them here in case you might have heard some of them. He was opposed by, these are good people, Polycarp. Uh, Polycarp called him the first, <laughs> called him the firstborn of Satan. Uh, Justin Martyr, Iranius, Clement, Tertullian, Hippolytus, and Origen—these were all early church fathers. They say that he was one of the few heretics that the Greek and Latin Christians united in condemning. And after he was excommunicated, he traveled around the world as a missionary for his version of Christianity, and he he won a lot of converts. And here's according to Tertullian, he planted churches as he said, as wasps make nests, (laughs) teaching men to deny that God is the maker of all things in heaven and earth, and and the Christ predicted by the prophets is His Son. Uh, Marcion's theological errors, and there were a lot of them, came down came from one main root. And here was his problem: he refused to believe uh, that the God of the Old Testament. Was the same as the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. He threw away the Old Testament completely. And he took what he only the only books in the Bible that he took in the New Testament were Luke's Gospel and some of Paul's epistles. And that's it. And that was, he said, the only books that belong in the canon of Scripture. And uh, so he cut it, he's cutting and pasting all over the place in the Bible and he had the Christian kind of formed this Christianity that he wanted a god of goodness and nothing else <clears throat> this message inspiring message of uplifting talk and god is love and he does he go does away with all the uncomfortable parts of the Bible uh, about god's wrath and, and hell he just erased those completely now, he was, and, and this is uh, very well uh, well written about, but he was antinomian, he was idealistic about the human potential, he, was, he hated dogma, he hated rules, this was who he was. Now why do I tell this story about Marcion on the Heretic? Because one thing this tells us is that the very, very early stages of Christianity uh, already this is right after the time of the apostles, the church w- was fighting this man, was against this man, because he was cutting books out of the Bible, which means they already had a set canon of Scripture. The early, early church already knew what books belonged in in the Bible. And it's the same uh, Scripture that we have today, the exact same. And so... Um, That that is one of the importance of of this person's life as we look in history. But know this, over the centuries, when when people attack the canon of Scripture, when somebody goes after and says, well, that book doesn't belong in the Bible, or that book doesn't belong in the Bible, what are they really trying to do? It's just like Marcion. They're trying to find a way to wiggle out of what God demands of a person. It's always the same. And instead of changing their behavior according to what God asked, they're going to just change their belief. I just don't believe that belongs in the Bible. Well, that's one way to get around it, but uh, this is not going to work. God doesn't take that view. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the test that the earliest Christians, I mean, we're talking the earliest Christians, um, t- took and, and the early Jews for how they would recognize what book belongs in the Word of God, belongs in Scripture. So here are the five tests of canonicity. Number one is authority. The question of authority. The, the book that they're looking at needed to be authoritative. It needed to claim authority. The book itself. Here's some examples of the Bible, books in the Bible, claiming authority. Uh, Genesis 15.1. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision. The word of the Lord came unto Abram. That is a very authoritative statement. Second Samuel 7.4. And it came to pass that night that the word of the Lord came unto Nathan... Jeremiah 1.4, Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying... Now you see those authoritative phrases. Uh, these are no small statements. We pass by them as we're reading Scripture, but they are enormous statements. And in the Old Testament alone, these type of statements are found 3,808 times. 3,808 times. Thus saith the Lord. The word of the Lord came to me and said... That is very authoritative. So that's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Well, all of the Gospels contain hundreds of quotations of Jesus. They tell us exactly what Jesus said, and that is the word of the Lord. And they also give several accounts of God speaking from heaven. So that's very authoritative. This is what God has said. This is what Jesus said. And in the epistles, it's the same. Paul said this. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. 23, For I have received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you. At Galatians 1, Paul says, But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. So they, the book, these books of the Bible, if you're, it's going to be considered as a book... Uh, In the canon of Scripture, it must be authoritative. And these are very authoritative statements. They're unmistakably authoritative. Uh, Paul is saying, my words are the words of God. My words are the words of God. Jeremiah was saying, my words are the words of God. Now, one thing I can guarantee you, Paul, as a Jew, would not have dared put that phrase down unless he was 100% confident that it was God who spoke to him. No Jew would risk blasphemy. Blasphemy was a very serious offense. There's no way he would dare risk that unless he knew it was from the Lord. And for any author or any book, and I was thinking about that myself, if I was to write a book, as thus saith the Lord to, to Luke, this, I would be scared to death. I'm, I'm scared to death to even say it. You know, I, God told me this or God told me that. I don't even say it. I'll say, I I feel like God has impressed on my heart, or I feel like God has spoken to me. I believe God still speaks in certain ways, but no, not inspiration. That's a totally different matter. We're talking about Scripture. I can't be 100% confident. Paul was. These writers were. And other books were written back then that contained truth in them. There's no doubt about that. The the, the Old Testament actually brings up the book of Jasher, the book of wars, I I think it is. And, uh, but those books were not included in the canon. They have truth in them, but they were not the word of the Lord. They were not authoritative. The books of the Bible have markers of authority. And that is the first reason uh, they were considered as part of the canon. The second question, the test of canonicity, was the writer, the writer themselves. So uh, the early Christians would get a book of the Bible, or, and they would look, who's writing this book? And the reason they're going to ask that question is something Peter said here in chapter one of 2 Peter. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of God, or excuse me, the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So the question is asked Were they a holy man of God? Were they a holy person? Were the Old Testament writers considered prophets, lawgivers, leaders in Israel? Were the New Testament writers considered apostles, ones who had seen Christ with their own eyes? Or were they backed by an apostle? For example, Mark, who wrote the book of Mark. uh, Most likely, he was under the supervision of Peter. Mark himself was an apostle, but Peter was there giving his supervision of his gospel. Now, for those books of the Bible that don't list the author... uh, Here's what they considered. They thought, well, is the person that's traditionally recognized as the author, is that true? Can we trace that? And, it, and they also would look at if it was written in the correct time period. Any book that would come, across, come into the early church that appeared forged or uh, not written in the proper time period was thrown out, such as the Gnostic Gospels. We're going to talk a little more about the Gnostic Gospels in a few minutes but uh but the fact is that the 66 books of the Bible have been very closely examined and examined and examined and examined and everyone is genuine none of them fail the canonicity test i remember reading in in uh, bible college one of the things the books that i had was uh was about the pentateuch which is the first five books of the bible uh that moses wrote but in the book that i one of the the books that i had they said that some scholars have come to the conclusion they've come to the conclusion that Moses did not write the Pentateuch. He was not the author of the Pentateuch. Even though Joshua calls those books the in quotes the book of the law of Moses. Nehemiah calls it the book of Moses. First and second kings, second chronicles, Daniel all attribute it to Moses. Luke in the gospel and in the acts uh, called the Pentateuch, called it actually Moses. He called the whole Pentateuch Moses. And Paul did the same in 2 Corinthians. It's very clear, it's extremely clear that Moses was the author of the first five books of the Bible. But there's always going to be doubters. There's doubters about David. Did you know over the past uh, 20, 30 years, there was this big push talking about, uh, or excuse me, before, about previous uh, 20 years, there was a push that David was not a real person. He never really truly existed. And the reason they said that was because they had never found anything uh, in archaeology that proved or had his name on it. Uh, and so they were, they were confident that David was not a real person. And then in 1993, they made a discovery, and it was called the Tel Dan Stone, and the inscription on it says, the house of David. And it talked about the king of Israel. And since that, that point, they've been unearthing more and more towns from David's time period that confirm everything uh, that, uh, that is written about David and in David's timeline. And it's all matching up to David's life. And the truth is, they're going to keep doubting uh, the truth of the scriptures. But the truth about the scriptures and who wrote them and all of the historical facts will always come out. They always do. Eventually. That's why I'm never stressed. I'm never worried when I see a a thing that comes up. Well, you know, we doubt this. You just haven't found the right thing yet. Pretty soon, somebody will uncover a stone and it'll be completely erased. We cannot let a few theologians talk us into doubting the genuineness of the scriptures. The next test is authenticity. Authority the writer and then authenticity now this this deals with a content that's written inside the book so what does the book of the bible say about god and here's the question is it consistent with the rest of the bible is it authentic is it truly a match up with all of the other books of the bible and the, the truths about god himself and the, the truth that god has given to us now the Christians in Berea, they, they set a really good example of what we're supposed to do. And here's what they did. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, they heard Paul preaching, and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. So God says these were noble Christians because they listened to Paul and then searched the scriptures to test his, the authenticity of what he was saying. So the early Christians would do that with any book of the Bible or any letter that would come across uh, the table. They would say, all right, is, does this match with all other scriptures that we know God has given to us? They searched the scriptures. And by the way, those early Christians found that Paul's teaching was in line with the Word of God. And so here's the question. Is each book of the Old Testament authentic in its message? Well, who should, who should we listen to on that one? Uh, let's look at the person who knew it best, and that's Jesus. Jesus... Uh, Authenticated every part of the Old Testament. He divided the Old Testament in three parts in this one verse, Luke 24 44. Look at this. And really, by doing this, he's putting a stamp of approval on all three parts. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses, and in the prophets, and in the Psalms concerning me. Jesus had the same books in his Old Testament that we do in ours. Uh, he had a Greek, uh, a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. The Greek translation was called the Septuagint. That's what Jesus read from. They were The books of the, of the Old Testament were in different order than we have them now. Uh, but the early Jews had already recognized that those 39 books belonged in the canon of Scripture. And not only did Jesus then divide them into three sections, but he confirmed that these parts are authentic by mentioning them. He also showed how all three of those sections harmonize together for one very clear message. Jesus said, it's about me. It's all about me. All those books are about me. Jesus also affirmed the Old Testament by quoting 20 from 24 of the Old Testament books, he himself. And then the New Testament altogether quotes from all of the Old Testament books except five. And there's another important verse that Jesus said, and I want to look at this. Very interesting. Luke 11, verse 51, from the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, which perished between the altar and the temple. Verily I say unto you, it shall be qu- required of this generation. What was Jesus doing here? He was summing up the entire Old Testament. See, the blood of Abel was talked about in the book of Genesis. The story of Zacharias's murder, the Zechariah the, the priest, that got up and. Uh, priest to people to repent and then they kill them for it. That's written in the book of Chronicles. The Ch- Chronicles was the last book of the Old Testament in Jesus' uh, the Septuagint, the, the, the Old Testament that Jesus read. Uh, now, today, they, because of, they wanted to do a topical arrangement, uh, the last book of our Old Testament is Malachi. But all the same books, all the same 39. So it would be like us saying from Adam to Malachi. Uh, the, the message of God's word in, in the Old Testament is consistent. So Jesus was summing up the entire Old Testament. In this verse, Jesus is showing, I completely accept the entire Old Testament. That's, that's the Old Testament. But what about the New Testament? Well, Jesus pre-authenticated the New Testament, in John 16, 13, he said, "Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you, talking to his apostles, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, and whatever he shall hear, That shall he speak, and he will show you the things to come. Or in John 14, 26, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you, he shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. So he said, God's going to speak to you. The Holy Spirit's going to come and give you the words to write. And since the writers of the New Testament books needed to be an apostle, or overseen by an apostle, we believe that the Revelation is the final book of Scripture. Uh, there are no more apostles, no, no more uh, people in the office of apostle living today. Um, we disagree with the Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, some Seventh-day Adventists, Roman Catholics, Orthodox, and even some Charismatics that believe that inspiration still happens today. Uh, you know, the Je- Jehovah's Witnesses have their inspired Watchtower magazine. Some Seventh-day Adventists make claims that Ellen G. White was inspired. On, on TV, you'll hear Charismatics and Pentecostals often make <clears throat> bold claims about being directly guided by the Holy Spirit. I, God is speaking and I have to do this. And uh, The Roman Catholic and Orthodox leaders, they view themselves di- as directly inspired by God. So I, I, we believe that God still speaks to people's hearts. I know he communicates to us through the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. But the canon of Scripture is closed. It's the, no more inspired Scripture. Uh, there are no more, there's no more the office of apostle today. Uh, the, the next, so that is the test of authenticity. The number four is the te- test of power. Does this book of the Bible, they would, they would look at it and read it and ask, does this book of the Bible have life-transforming power? Could it change a person? Does it have an anointing on it? This is a heart test. This is, this is something that goes deeper than just words on a page. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God, so if it's going to be the word of God, it's going to be quick or alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart or of my heart. Again, we don't necessarily read the Bible. The Bible reads us. <laughs> the Bible digs deep. It, it exposes what's in our hearts. And it has this power to change a person when they apply it to their life. The early churches rightly understood that the word of God will have supernatural power in it. And we know that today. When the Bible really truly is applied to somebody's life, you can see real change. And they feel the real change. You know, it's actually interesting to see the difference in power when you hold up, when you read the Bible next to some other ancient writing. Or any other writing, really. You can judge for yourself. As an example, if you put up the Bible next to the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha. Apocrypha, which is included in Catholic Bibles and some other uh, Orthodox Church Bibles, the word Apocrypha means hidden or doubtful. There were a certain amount of books that were written uh, between 400 B.C. and the time of Christ. And uh, today these are included in the Roman Catholic Bible, but they were not recognized at all as part of the Jewish Old Testament. Uh, The Jews didn't accept the Apocrypha. And, and uh, none of the books claim to be the word of God in those. And so that's part of the test. But here's another thing. Neither Jesus nor the apostles ever quoted from any of the books of the Apocrypha. Even early Catholic leaders didn't approve of it, which is interesting. And actually it wasn't even seen as officially part of their Bible until the 1500s. So and when you read the Apocrypha, and I did a little bit, when you, have, when you read the Apocrypha, it has a totally different character than Scripture altogether. They, it doesn't speak authoritatively. It's not cohesive with the rest of the Bible. There are contradictions within it and certainly with the rest of Scripture. So when you read the Apocrypha, it might have some historical value. Uh, maybe, you know, you're talking about the life of Solomon or some of the things that happened in in between that period, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that 400 years there. But if you read it, and when I did, you'll come away just saying, this is a boring history book. (laughs) But uh, but true scripture has this spirit in it. It's alive, as Hebrews 4.12 said. It's alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it jumps off the page and digs into the heart. And if you just think about the countless lives that have been transformed or that have been impacted by this book, we don't even realize how much the Bible has impacted our life uh, externally as well as internally, uh, even by the fact that how much the Bible has done in this nation and all over the world. George Washington, I'm going to name just a few here, but George Washington said this about the Bible, it is impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. Woodrow Wilson said, I am sorry for men who do not read the Bible every day. I wonder why they deprive themselves of the strength and pleasure. Ulysses S. Grant said, Hold fast to the Bible as the sheet anchor of your liberties. Write its precepts on your heart and practice them in your lives. William McKinley said, The more profoundly we study this wonderful book, the more closely we observe its divine precepts, the better citizens we will become and the higher will be our destiny as a nation. Daniel Daniel Webster, Webster's Dictionary, He said, education is useless without the Bible. Theodore Roosevelt, a thorough understanding of the Bible is better than a college education. Andrew Jackson said, the book that is the Bible is the rock on which our republic rests. Theodore Roosevelt also said, it is necessary for the welfare of the nation that men's lives be based on the principles of the Bible. No man, educated or uneducated, can afford to be ignorant of the Bible. Sir Isaac Newton said, I have a fundamental belief in the Bible as the word of God, written by men who were inspired. I study the Bible daily. Horace Greeley said, it is impossible to mentally or socially enslave a Bible-reading people. The principles of the Bible are the groundwork of human freedom. Douglas MacArthur said, believe me, sir, never a, right, uh, never a night goes by be I ever so tired, but I read the word of God before I go to bed. John Quincy Adams said, it has been my custom for many years to read the Bible in its entirety once a year. Ronald Reagan said, of the many influences that have shaped the United States into a distinctive nation and people, none may may be said to be more fundamental and enduring than the Bible. uh, Jim McCotter said, all scripture is God-breathed, and he doesn't waste his breath. (laughs) Queen Elizabeth, she said, tell your prince that this book is the secret of England's success. And lastly, one of my favorites, W.E. Gladstone said, I have known 95 of the world's great men in my time. And of these, 87 were followers of the Bible. (laughs) It's very practical. But who would doubt? Who could doubt that the Bible has a power, has just something in it that is over and above every other book? There is nothing like the Bible in all of the world, and it has a power that is unmatched. The last test is reception, and that's really the question that we they would apply to a, a book of the Bible. And that is whether or not God's people as a whole, generally uh, God's church would acknowledge that this book is from God and it would, be, it would be acknowledged as such right after it was written and over the years. And so the question is, did those faithful Jews in the Old Testament accept Genesis through Deuteronomy immediately as God's word? Did they accept the prophets as God's Word? Did they accept the Psalms as God's Word? Did the early church recognize Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Paul's writings, Peter's writings, as God breathed Scripture? Did those people, right after the apostles, did they accept it? Did they begin using it as Scripture? And the answer is a resounding yes. It was universally accepted. This, there is just no doubt. The early Jews put the scrolls that contained the law that Moses wrote They put, and the prophets, and the Psalms, they put it all in the tabernacle immediately after being written. It was sacred from day one. And what about the New Testament? Well, in the very next century following Jesus and the apostles, you see the church leaders uh, quoting from the books of the New Testament. You see them quoting what Paul wrote and what Peter wrote. and, uh, And the Gospels. In fact, between 100 and 200 A.D., They were already using the New Testament as inspired scripture—the same books that we have. In fact, here I want to give you something. In in England, in the 1700s, a group of Bible scholars were sitting around discussing this. They said somebody brought this up: suppose that all copies of the New Testament uh, were lost at the end of the third century? Could it be? Do you think? Do you think it would? The whole New Testament could be reconstructed from the writings of the early church fathers. So there was one individual at that meeting. His name was Sir David Dalrymple, and he accepted the challenge. So for two months, he searched all the documents, only reading the early church fathers. These are basically the disciples of the disciples. And he reported that in spite of just those two months, very limited time, he was able to reconstruct the entire New Testament except for 11 verses. 11 verses. Just from what they were quoting. So this means that the very words that you're reading today in your Bible... And in my Bible, are the same exact words that changed people's lives two thousand years ago. It's the same thing that Polycarp and others were writing about. There was never any church councils, and let me be very clear on this: there were never any church councils that gave us the canon of Scripture. The, the uh, some came along later. There were some church councils that got together and they gave formal statements that that the canon has already been accepted. And it had been used for hundreds of years. Uh, and that we're using those 66 books of the Bible. But I want us to realize something and make it very clear. The Catholic Church takes a lot of credit for early Christianity and preserving the scriptures. But it's long before the Catholic Church even started. There were little churches meeting in homes, under trees, in buildings, all over the world, reading from the Word of God as we have it today. The Catholic Church did not give us the canon of scripture. Uh, I, I wish I had time to go through and tell you where each one of the, the apostles traveled to. But it's all over the world. They went to Turkey, Greece, Rome, India, southern Russia, Asia Minor, central Asia, Egypt, Armenia, Spain. Uh, they went, all, and some even went as far as Britain. And, they, and they, were, they were starting churches everywhere. And it was very difficult. It wasn't just them, but there were all kinds of people going around starting churches people would be saved in a little house church person would get a burden to go go to the next village and then that person would go to the next village and say oh, I'm going to go even further and 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 the word of God and the gospel of God began to spread all over the world there was no big denomination overseeing these churches there was these little independent churches all over the place starting and and a pastor being uh, put in charge there, and then just going and it was very difficult to have a Word of God there a whole copy very precious in those days, most people couldn 't have it in their own homes, but they would have it in church, and they would come and read. There was no printing press, uh, but th- those days were simple, they were simple beginnings, but the Word was spreading all over the world, and it was that 's why we have so many copies of copies of the Word of God because Uh, It was so precious, and people just kept, little people, whatever they could, just copying the Word of God. And even when the Catholic Church rose to power in the late 300s, there were still, and it always has been, still those little churches, those little independent churches all throughout the world just keeping going, just keep going, keep going, and not, uh, not trapped by all those rituals. And I just want to say today that the devil has many ways to dilute and undermine the Word of God. And real quick, I want to give you this... A revival of really an old heresy that people t- have talked about for the last few years, and that's the Gnostic Gospels. Uh, you know, th- these got popular a few years ago with the book, The Da Vinci Code. And author Dan Brown tried to say that there are five or six more Gospels that should be in the Bible, should have been considered for the canon anyway. Well, the problem is, none of them are written by an apostle, even though some of them have the name of the apostle. But the early Christians rejected these books, and they rejected any documents that used a pseudonym. If, if you were not the real writer, but you put a different name, no way. That's, that's automatic disqualification. These, these books were written 100 to 200 years after Jesus. They, they say that Jesus was a divine spirit, not God in the flesh. They don't match up with the rest of Scripture. And then they also have ridiculous claims, like Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene. And the early church would never consider. And they never did consider these for canonization. But again, leave it to the devil. to Bring something bright and shiny to divert everybody's attention away from the same old truth that we know and we have known for so long. And I've noticed people sometimes have a hard time sticking to and loving the old book, the old truth, the old stuff that's just been there from day one. And others love that old book and just eat it up and it becomes a close friend like many of you and that's because you folks see it for what it really is and when you really dig into each one of these little books every one of them you realize is powerful and life-changing john newton said this precious bible what a treasure does the word of god afford all i want for life or pleasure food and medicine shield and sword let the world account me poor christ and this i need no more I want to, I'm going to end with this little sweet little story. It's a real quick one. An American missionary, he was traveling across Korea by train. He was sitting across in the train from a person from uh, in the American and Korea, sitting across from each other. They couldn't understand each other, trying to speak. And they tried to go back and forth, and then all of a sudden he used the word yesu, the Korean person. And so he, I recognized that. That's Jesus. And the American pointed to himself, yesu, yesu, yesu. The Korean unwrapped his, his stuff, and he was carrying a, a Bible. And he opened up the Bible, and he, he, he showed something. And he realized he, he could go back, and he, so the, the American opened up his Bible, realized he was showing him something from Mark three thirty five that says, Whosoever does the will of God is my brother. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're my brother, yes, okay. And so he, he scrambled to go in his Bible, and he opened to Psalm 133, verse 1, Behold, and how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And they went back and forth, <laughs> opening Scripture. This is the only way they could communicate, all through God's Word. And just the, I just so, was so blessed by that, just thinking, you know, this is the book all over the world that not only unites our hearts to the Lord, but unites our hearts with people and God's people. It is a, it's not just a book. It's not just a book. It's the answer for the entire world. It really, really is. Father, we love you. We pray.